Listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio AM820 brings you Foundations in Faith. Join Monsignor Frank Lane as he offers insights into the readings heard at Mass. And now, Foundations in Faith with Monsignor Frank Lane. This is Father Frank Lane. We're continuing our program, Foundations in Faith. Today we're going to look at the Holy Gospel according to St. Mark. We're going to continue with the Gospel of St. Mark, this time chapter 1, verses 1 through 6. We've had a series now of these readings from Mark. The first, Jesus calms the sea. The second, he, he heals the daughter of Jairus and um, heals the woman with the hemorrhage. And now we find him going back into his hometown. And uh, <clears throat> after all of this, there's some interesting pre- preludes to this. For instance, in the Gospel of Luke, in chapter 7, um, Jesus raises the son of the widow of Nain. And uh, Nain was a, uh, was a Galilean city, not far from Nazareth. Certainly the Nazareans would have heard, anyone would have heard, within the local districts, if someone had been raised from the dead. Then secondly, we go to Mark and Matthew's gospel, and here there is <clears throat> the, the healing of, uh, of the daughter of Jairus and, uh, and also the healing of the lady with the hemorrhage. Um, the healing of the lady with the hemorrhage would not maybe have been the latest news, but certainly the raising of the daughter of Jairus would be well known, for she had been proclaimed dead. And in fact, the professional mourners had already arrived, and when Jesus got there, they were weeping and wailing according to, you know, according to the customs that they had then for, for waking the dead. Then, after that, we're not sure, actually, the scriptures are not clear about where Jairus was a synagogue official or where it all took place, but it seems that it probably, the greatest, the strongest candidate for the place, is the city of Capernaum, where Jesus was staying, and especially since it said um, when he went to Jairus's, he went back to the other side of the lake. Well, we already know he had been crossing the lake, and so... <clears throat> we probably could legitimately assume that he was going back to his his home area. If so, of course, that would increase some of the tension that's going on in the gospel today because uh, apparently the Nazareans were resentful of the teacher who had now become quite famous, especially after rising people from the dead, and uh, and that he had chosen to live in Capernaum rather than his hometown of Nazareth, and to them, therefore, to bring the glory of his fame <clears throat> um, to somewhere else besides his hometown. At any rate, Jesus went to his hometown, and his disciples accompanied him. And with the coming of the Sabbath, he began teaching in the synagogue, and most of them were astonished when they heard him. And they said, where did the man get all this? What is this wisdom that he had been granted to him and these miracles that are worked through him? This is the carpenter, surely the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Jude and Simon. His sisters too, are they not here among us? And they would not accept him. Here then is part of the crooks of the story. The crooks of the story is that this is kind of a fulfillment in the story of Jesus going back to Nazareth of the the old line a prophet is never accepted among his own and uh, <clears throat> and there's a wisdom in that that we ourselves can learn a great deal from 
Jesus is identified as the son of a carpenter, therefore he was in, it, he was known what his trade was was known. Um, the presumption seems to be that Joseph is no longer alive since he's not identified here at all, except by trade. And uh, is this not the carpenter? And so they know that Jesus himself is uh, is has busied himself in the trade that Joseph had trained him in. But then Mark says something interesting. See, is he the son of Mary? Now this seems to us, yeah, sure he was the son of Mary, but it's very, very unusual for a man in, in first century Palestine to be um, in any way um, <clears throat> um, identified as the son of the mother rather than the son of the father. And there's two possibilities here that, that we might want to look at. The first possibility is that there's a, this is kind of a, a snide remark kind of implying and somewhat casting doubt on his legitimacy. But it also could be Mark's way of acknowledging the virgin birth. And since it's not particularly clear what he's doing, um, that uh, we can interpret it either way we want. But since Mark does not deal with the virgin birth, this might well be his way of referencing it because it certainly is very clear in Luke's gospel and in Matthew's gospel. Then they go on and they say the brother of James and Joseph and Jude and Simon and sisters and, and so forth, are they not all here? Well, you know, we'll, we'll get to that in a moment. But first of all, this idea of being rejected by the people of Nazareth and the lesson that that has for us. Basically, what it's saying is that anything too familiar to us we tend to to deal with rather cavalierly. I think that all sorts of people in our daily lives, all of us in our daily lives, fail very often to appreciate the gifts that we've been given, fail very often to really kind of acknowledge the, the wonder and the, and the uh, of, of all that we have been given, of all that the Lord has allowed us to have. Certainly marriages can get like that. Certainly family life can get like that. It's just so, it's just so, uh, so common. Um, and it's daily, daily, daily always there that, you know, you, you fail to really appreciate the greatness of the people with whom we share our lives, the greatness of the people with whom, you know, we, we share our households even. Um, some of the greatness of the people that we, that we are privileged to work for and work with, that others can step in from the outside and be kind of amazed at the kind of, of friendship or the kind of love and families and so forth, which those people inside the thing that they're, that they're acknowledging oftentimes are just so, so used to it that they fail to appreciate the depth of it or the uniqueness of it or the goodness in it. The same is true in our faith life, and this is something we can learn from the Nazareans on this occasion, that <clears throat> within, within 10 miles of any of us uh, listening to this, there's probably 20 or 30 um, reserved sacraments in tabernacles around the, uh, around the world. Um, the um <clears throat> and and we kind of drive by the churches we kind of walk by the churches we kind of 
You know, um, and granted, I know that for safety reasons, many of them are now locked. But that's, um, but that's just something that, do we really think of it? There is a, a, a custom. Um, it used to be when, when men wore hats all the time, which was kind of part of the ordinary dress of, of a man, that when he passed the church, he would tip his hat. It's also kind of a custom for people to make signs of the cross when they, when they but, but that's an older custom and one that's not carried on very much anymore. And so the question becomes, who is the Lord to us? Um, our churches are everywhere. Um, the Catholic culture, while under attack and certainly diminishing, is nevertheless a very much a part of our lives. It's very much a part of our everyday life. It's part of the story of our lives. Whether we were born Catholics or whether we were converted to Catholicism, whatever it is, it, it's kind of pervasive. It's just always there. Whenever we want to go to Mass, we can. Whenever we want the sacraments, we can get them. Um, all of those kinds of things. And it does have a tendency in us to, de- to develop a, a rather cavalier attitude um, toward the great gifts of the Lord that we have. It's, it's an opportunity, this gospel is an opportunity for us to take stock of the, uh, of the greatness of what the Lord has given to us and, uh, and the greatness of what God has done for us in our lives. I think that um, that if the gospel serves us no other purpose, perhaps that's a purpose that it has served us. Draw our attention to the fact that have we become ourselves too accustomed, too used to Jesus, too accustomed to wandering past the tabernacle or the churches where he dwells in the sacrament, of not availing ourselves of the opportunity for Mass or even of short visits where that's possible and when that's possible. Um, Attentiveness, in other words, to the presence of the Lord among us. That's a struggle because it's just always there. So that when the Nazarenes say, he is so familiar, he grew up here. We knew him. We knew the kids he played with. We knew his parents. We knew everything. So where does he get all this? What is this all about? And, uh, and then, in the back of their minds also, he does have quite a reputation. And, uh, and yet he performed a miracle of life in the, in the village of Naim, not far from Nazareth, that he uh, raised Jairus' daughter from the dead <clears throat> just on the other side of the lake. And, uh, and yet here he is just kind of an ordinary person with a certain amount of wisdom in the synagogue. But where are the signs? Where are the wonders? Where does he give honor to his hometown? Where does he give honor to us? In other words, what do we get out of this presence of, of the Lord among us? And, uh, and in Luke's gospel, of course, um, they, they, they try to become violent with him. Um, they try, as one commentator said that, well, they, you know, they try to throw him over a cliff and all of this. Mark is not quite so graphic in that, but he simply says, then they would not accept him. And Jesus said to them, a prophet is only despised in his own country, among his own religions, in his own house, and he could work no miracle there. Faith was lacking. What was there was, was, um, opportunism, was exploitation, was, uh, kind of wanting, you know, 
it, it's that it's that line from the great line from scripture. We played you a tune and you did not dance. We sang you a dirge and you did not wail. You don't do it our way, and so we want nothing to do with you. You are simply the kid down the street, and um, and so you know. And besides that, we know your whole family, and none of them are very spectacular either. So we we are indifferent to you. I think part of our reflection and part of our meditation on this gospel is is for us to take this very personally, to place ourselves in the village of Nazareth, to understand the familiarity that we had with the, with, with the young man Jesus, um, and the fact that we knew his relatives and we knew his parents, and, and uh, all of a sudden, is he going to rise up to be a great leader? Is he going to... Some men are able to do that in their native places. But here, there was such a strong sense of competition with Capernaum, and such a strong resentment toward his, his uh, actually... Um, criticizing them for their attitude, that they they completely lost any confidence or trust and any benefit from his appearance, from his presence. So let's reflect on that and let's think of that in in our lives and and let's let's pray about that in 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 our reflections on this gospel. This is not a story that can be wasted because this one is very personal and it's very personal for us for each and every person. But there's another element to this gospel too which I think is important for us to address. And the other gospel which is very important for us to address, the other part of the gospel, is when we get into Jesus' family. First of all, we already saw, they know he's a carpenter. Um, Because his father is not mentioned, Joseph's not mentioned, we presume Joseph is dead. And if, in fact, they wanted to cast a slur on his legitimacy, then the son of Mary um, serves that purpose. But it's also very possible that Mark was using that as a reference to the virgin birth, that the parent of Jesus, the earthly parent of Jesus, truly is Mary of Nazareth. But then we hear about his brothers, James and Joseph and Jude and Simon and his sisters who are all here with us as well. And, uh, and do we not know them all? Well, this brings up a very, important, a very important issue within our faith life. And one which this is a great opportunity to address. Because here, the church we know defines that Mary was a virgin before, during, and after the birth of Jesus. This is taken. This was taken, especially in the Protestant Reformation, vehemently um, rejected, vehemently, because it seemed to somehow or other imply a very negative interpretation of sexuality. That uh, that for to us rejoice in the fact that the Virgin Mary was a virgin, even though she was married to Joseph and stayed a virgin her entire life, seems to those who are small of mind to be somehow or other an attack on the inherent goodness of human sexuality. But, you know, that has nothing to do with it. Um, And we'll see that in a few minutes. But the other issue is the brothers and the sisters of the Lord. Well, we know that in Luke's Gospel, James and Joseph and Jude are identified as the, uh, the son of another Mary. Not Mary of Nazareth, but Mary of of Clopas. And so these these 
men who are identified as the brothers of the Lord have a mother other than his own. And, uh, and they also have a father other than Joseph. Their father is Clopas. And, uh, and so the gospel then identifies them not as Mary's natural children, but as part of the extended family of Jesus. And, you know, and, and I remember hearing, well, you know, in those days, extended families, cousins were, were called brothers and sisters. And, well, that, that's true. But there's a deeper, there's a deeper reality to that. Um, it's not because we can't assume the same familial structures in the first century of Palestine that we have experienced in 20th and 21st century America. That, that simply is not true. That simply is not the way it is. Um, they, the people, the people in, in ancient Palestine, like so many of the ancient peoples, lived a sort of clan existence and not so much the nuclear family existence. We see that certainly, you know, in the whole development of the Irish church, which was very much a problem with the English Reformation and has turned out to be very much a problem with the, uh, with the theological um, workings of, of Lumen Gentium and the Second Vatican Council that it is a culture contrary to what they have experienced as extended families, as clans. Within the, we, the clan is, of course, the Irish and the Scottish term. Um, nevertheless, um, we're, we're able to, to use that in other, in other primitive societies as well. And the Middle Easterners, even today, the Palestinians... Um, have a different sense of family than the Europeans do. They have a sense of extended family as being intimately related, as being you know, referred to as brothers and sisters. So that it's not the Catholic Church making up something in order to protect the virginity of Mary. It's kind of a sociological phenomenon that the gospel employs, which happens to um, coincide to the actual lived experience of the, of the first century Palestinians. And in so doing, um, therefore, and by identifying some of these men with another mother and another father, it brings to the fore the whole idea. Now, there is one evangelical um, preacher who had an ingenious uh, interpretation in order to protect um, the, the notion of Mary having children by saying, oh, well, that's because after Joseph died, Mary remarried someone named Clopas, and so... Um, and so that's, she really was the mother of these boys. Um, that's kind of foolish, um, because certainly in the gospel context, Mary would be referred to as the mother of Jesus. And, uh, and, uh, and she is all through the gospels. So that's just kind of pushing an ideological point. We know, for instance, in the Reformation, there was a ferocious hatred of celibacy. And... Um, and the forces of the Reformation forced convents and monasteries to close. And certainly there's the famous case of the monastery in Nuremberg, um, where the sisters refused to leave the cloister, and they were attacked and beaten and thrown into wagons and hauled away and forced into marriages and all of this kind of thing. So, yeah, somehow or other, celibacy became kind of the, uh, the boogeyman of, uh, of reform society in the 16th, 17th, 18th centuries. To some degree is still that today. Um, but the point is... This gospel does not affirm that Mary had other children than Jesus. 
So the question then becomes, what's the nature of this issue? Why is this issue important? And I think that when we take this, what we can look back on and say, this has something to do with eschatology as well. It has something to do with the end times and the coming of the kingdom. Because in the end, in the end, we are filled with the divine being. We are divinized. Thomas Aquinas says that. The Eastern Church says this. Genesis says that this is where we have come from. That the salvation means in some ways the divinization, which means that we are taken into, not as uh, amorphous blobs, but as persons taken into the life of the triune God and taken into the life of Jesus Christ, which happens to us each time we receive the Eucharist, which is why the Eucharist is in small pieces the putting together of the kingdom of all eternity, the kingdom of heaven. Um, but in the end, there we are filled with the Lord. And if we are going to say that being filled with the Lord is inadequate for us, if that's not the total completion and fulfillment of the human person, then we're going to have to resort to some kind of primitive understanding of paradise, similar to what, uh, to what Islam does. And, uh, and uh, the Jehovah Witnesses as well, and so forth, that creating some kind of a projection of paradise, which is nothing more than the perfection of the life we have here. And, uh, and, and it has a very sexual dimension to it. And in, uh, in Islam, it has a very materialistic uh, dimension to it in, in some of the other um, more fundamentalist or more fringe group uh, Protestants. Um, But the question is, is God enough for a human person? Is that sufficient? We go back to Luke's gospel, and we find that the angel says to Mary, Hail, full of grace, the Lord is with you. Then we hear that the Holy Spirit comes upon her, and that she conceives a child. In both cases, what Luke is narrating is that Mary of Nazareth becomes filled with with God, through grace in the very beginning, by the coming into her of the Holy Spirit, and by the carrying of the second person of the Blessed Trinity in her womb, that she is therefore visited by the whole Trinity, and that they not only visit her as neighbors, um, like they did with Abraham in the story of the three visitors, but they are within her. They are part of who she is then, and they have filled her with themselves. If that is not enough for Mary, if she still feels the inadequacy of God's presence within her and of the mission that she has been given, and she therefore needs to live kind of the normal earthbound human life, then what was that all about? Why did that happen? How did God come and leave? Was not that a continued part of her being? And wasn't that why she was assumed into heaven? Is because she never had to experience the deprivation of God in this life. That it was, she was always full of God in her whole life. And that was enough for her. The idea that she just went on and married and married Joseph, had children, and then when he died, married Clopas and had children and all that, 
There is no grounding for that in sacred scripture. There is no argument for that. There is no sense that God is not enough for us. There is no sense that God is only a piece of our life and not kind of an interior whole within our lives. God is enough for us. And if he is not enough for us, then what is heaven? If he is not enough for us, then what are we destined for? If all we're going to do is be happy for all eternity, what does that mean? How many people who have a lot in this life, who are happy in this life, still long for that union with the Lord? What about the great mystics of the church who have experienced the interiority of Jesus in their lives? Do they say, this is great because now I just want to stay here and live with this? Or do they not want to go consummate that? Do they not want to go further into that? Do they not want that to be all-absorbing? We have but to read <clears throat> Teresa of Avila or Therese of Lisieux or, or any of the great mystics, you know, John of the Cross and uh, so many of them through the, through the centuries. Um, is that what we're doing? Is that what we're saying? Is that, you know, that the mystics, while they certainly possessed the Lord, they were certainly on fire with the Lord. Um, they certainly had a, a huge personal response to the Lord's presence within them. And, and yet, that was never enough for them. They wanted the whole, they wanted it to be complete. It was complete in Mary. And so she lived with the sorrow in her heart of the cruelty to her son, but with the deep and abiding assurance that that God was within her, God had consumed her, and that she lived with him and in him and with him. So just in a way, as Jesus was God, Mary had God within her. And we never find a time she is a loving mother to her son. She suffers when he suffers. She's with him in his agony, in his struggles, in his all of those things. But she has never any need of anything but love, for God is totally within her. And her whole emotional thing with Jesus' suffering is the pain of love. Nothing is more torturous, Jeremiah says, than the human heart. So when we have now this encounter with the virginity of Mary, let us not trivialize it into some kind of Catholic anti-sex kind of idea because actually the perpetual virginity of Mary is not about sex. It's about the destiny of the Virgin and the destiny of humanity. Foundations in Faith is a production of listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio AM820. Archives of Foundations in Faith are available at stgabrielradio.com. So